0: Hey, Sandy. What are we? <sighs> yeah. Yeah. I am sitting here in Los Angeles where we have just received for the second night in a row a push notification to our phones. One of those emergency notifications that you get, you know, when someone's been ad- abducted. This is the second night in a row that I've received one that there is a curfew. The curfew starts in uh, fifteen minutes. It's five forty-five p.m. The curfew starts at six p.m. Oh my god! We were, yeah, and we were given that notice um, with with forty minutes, forty minutes to get home. So, I, you know, I'm already home because, you know, pandemic, but uh, for those people who, you know, are essential workers or are at work, you know, I worry about what that's going to be like for them tonight. And it's just been a really emotionally exhausting uh, uh, week, a really frustrating week.
1: Yeah, of course. I mean... We are witnessing, uh, it feels like it's unprecedented state repression in the United States. I don't know if unprecedented is a fair word, because obviously there's been lots and lots of state repression in the United States. The the police in the United States have never hesitated to kill prominent activists or drop bombs on people's homes. Um, But it does feel like there's a moment. And um, I mean, I know I've been up every night watching the news as much as I can. And uh, I can only imagine, like, to be so close to
0: what's going on, it's got to be pretty surreal, I guess. Yeah, it's pretty surreal. It's also kind of scary. And it feels it, it's also very, um, you know, I, I worry about all of the, the black folks who are out there protesting right now and what that's going to mean uh, f- uh, for their health Uh, what it means that they're coming into direct contact with police officers who don't seem to care about uh, even the media being there. You know, police are uh, brazenly attacking uh, media who are there to show people what's going on. And so that that makes me quite nervous. And then I also feel um, like just – it just feels like it's 2016 again and I'm angry – uh, at at that that not enough has happened like I just it just feels like the exact same thing happening again, and I don't think that there are words to to really uh put into um the universe <laughs> to really describe what that feels like. I don't think um that there are words for that because uh who would think that something like this? could happen over and over and over and over again with nothing nothing being done to change it. It feels impossible. 2016
1: feels not that long ago, and it wasn't really that long ago, although so much has changed in Canada politically. And I remember like feeling like the actions that were taken by Black Lives Matter in 2016 had started to finally break into... Mainstream consciousness, uh, language and vocabulary was changing. There was, um, you know, debates around tactics and whether or not demands went too far. But it managed to push a kind of debate that had never happened in Canada. And, uh, you know, I watched the United States kind of as like a 100% outsider going, oh, this is all very interesting and scary. I mean, so many people were killed in Ferguson following the protests there that you just know that the police have no problem doing that but it did feel like in Canada that there were some positive changes that seemingly I don't know were undone so quickly through just like neglect or ignoring any small progress that had been made at the provincial level and then at the federal level I mean the liberals are just so slippery that anything that they do is not going to be Long-standing or anything like that. But yeah, it's got to be pretty frustrating to see work that you, that like good work that was done in 2016, not seemingly have much of an
0: impact. What really did the federal government ever really do besides announce uh $25 million, which is a pittance, um, uh, in their budget to go directly to black communities that they never spent. So, you know, it's just like, here we are again. Yeah. Um, and uh, with Regis Korczynski Picat her mother, who was a witness to what happened, saying that her daughter's last words was help me, mom, you know, uh, and and having Canadian media, much like 2014, um, when Jermaine Carby was killed by police in Brampton, um, really focus on what's happening in the United States um, to the exclusion of the very similar police brutality against black people here in Canada. It occurred to me that while it feels like not much has changed or enough
1: has changed or nothing has changed. I have to say that the groundwork in activism though has changed. I mean, the the responses that we're seeing from people in the streets in Canada. And I think this, so, so this episode obviously is going to be talking about what's happening right now yeah. in both Canada and the United States. Um, and i'm i'm going to be probably talking more about canada cuz my my knowledge of the united states is just so abysmal that i just don't get that place at all you're like the resident american on the show
0: i i don't understand america either so don't look to me <laughs> i'm not the one <laughs> yeah um but the 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 organizing has seemed to be
1: very amazing and some of it's been spontaneous and some of it has not been spontaneous but like as we are speaking right now there are thousands of people in the streets of montreal Um, The police have already resorted to tear gas and um, usually protests in Montreal against police brutality are very brutal protests. And so by the time this comes out, we'll have heard how those rallies go. Or maybe we won't because the mainstream press is ignoring
0: it and you know like uh, the as you say the the work that activists have done on the ground have really changed the types of conversations that are possible right now and i think that the conversation that people are ready for finally finally is a discussion about defunding the police and so some of you who are listening may have seen that i i wrote a series of tweets or a facebook note if you're on facebook Um, uh, talking about an experience that I had uh, with the CBC, which, you know, we'll get into a little bit, um, when they asked me to comment uh, on uh, what was happening in the United States. And one of the things that I said in that Twitter thread was that that I also said to the CBC, and I was describing what I had said in a pre-interview to the CBC, one of the things that I had said was that we need to defund the police. And there's been quite a few people who are like responding to um, that tweet and responding to uh, my Facebook note, being like, you know, oh, what she meant by defund was like like reduce the amount of money going in. Like she 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 she, she misspoke. Which what she did there was she didn't know what words mean. And I want to be very clear that what I mean is defund the police. In the the exact meaning of what the word defund means, <laughs> yes, uh, I don't think that uh, the police should exist. And people have asked us before on this show to go through why we say that because we've said that several times before. And so, if you're ready to hear it, here we go. Let's talk about it. You know, I'm seeing more and more people. Um, uh, writing about it in mainstream publications so I, I feel like more now than ever before this is a time when people are ready to hear it just like in you know, 2014 and 2016 people were finally ready to start talking about the fact that there is something called anti-black racism <laughs> which, which, was, which was different and there is something called carting um, which needs to be discussed Like I feel like this moment right now people are ready to talk about what defunding the police could look like Ah, oh, one of my favorite topics.
1: <laughs> I I feel like this is so important for a lot of reasons, but the the one that's most obvious to me is that like we're always in this logic that there's no money to do the things that we want to do. And If you look at the budgets as if they're a given, like you can't change any of the line items in the budget, then yeah, then there's not much room to move around because money's already been allocated. But there's always this giant chunk of money that has been dedicated to the police and the police work really, really, really hard to make it such that you, dear listener, your parents, your friends believe that the police are... So important that if they did not exist, we would live in a completely chaotic and dangerous society. And so this episode will hopefully disabuse you of that notion and get we'll get everyone who's like never thought of this to be pro reduction of the budget and everyone who's been like pro reduction to be like
0: abolish the police? Am I being too conservative here? <laughs> let's let's move that over to the window. <laughs> let's just just kick it (laughs) make the police pay us (laughs) the police should pay us to exist precisely like okay um so just before we get into it I do want to talk a little bit about this 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 twitter thread that uh seems to have gone viral uh despite the fact that it was not thought out at all and was was made as I was like waiting for my car to get fixed at the dealership uh wearing gloves (laughs) uh to protect myself (laughs) from the coronavirus. So I got contacted uh, by a producer uh, from the CBC to uh, comment on what had happened in the United States to uh, George Floyd, um, who uh, was killed by police uh, in Minneapolis, and what had happened with Amy Cooper, who is a a Canadian, who was in a park and was walking her dog without a leash, which is against the rules. Chris Cooper then approaches Amy Cooper and asks her to put her dog on leash. Uh, She responds by uh, threatening to call the police and then does call the police, stating that uh, she is being threatened by an African-American man and uh, feigning terror in her voice while he records her. Um, uh, And so the CBC contacts me and says, a producer contacts me and says, can you comment on these two things? The night before uh, the CBC contacted me, Regis Korczynski Piquet was trending on Twitter because uh, people were distraught over yet again another incident of police brutality against a black person in Toronto. And I responded to the CBC producer to say, Are you also going to be discussing Regis Piquet? Some people uh, who responded to my series of tweets later said that I shouldn't have done that, and I'm going to address that also later, like why I think it's important that I did. So I so I asked her if she's going to be talking about this. The producer... Um, Later responds to say that um, there's only eight minutes, and for anyone who's who's done like radio before, like eight minutes is a long time <laughs> to talk to talk about anything. I was like, eight minutes, girl, we could talk about so much in eight minutes. But she <laughs> yeah. says there's only eight minutes, and we really want to focus on American racism, and so we will not be able to get into things like uh, Regis or Brianna Taylor, who is a woman who was killed by police um, in her home. Uh, and it's interesting that she brought that up because she's talking about two two black women who have been killed, saying that we can't talk about those things, even though Brianna Taylor is in the United States. So I, you know, on another level, that's fucked up. And uh, so she says she wants to do a pre-interview with me anyway, and so uh, I get on a call.
1: Pre-interview is a funny thing that is pretty much invisible to people unless the person being interviewed is like, "Well, I told your producer earlier this uh, the answer to this question. Why you ask me again?" <laughs> It's when the they're doing the the, the the questioning of what the host is going to ask you before you're on the air. And so you basically do, like, the interview as it's going to be just so that they can make sure that you're able to answer the questions, that it flows naturally, and that you're, like, I guess the right fit. But usually by the time you get to the pre-interview, unless you're, like, unable to answer a single question, it's pretty much just making sure that what they want is going to be on the air, which is where you run into some problems in this story.
0: Right. And so we start to do the pre-interview. I answered her questions about uh, George Floyd and about Amy Cooper and um, uh, very, I would say, expertly, because I've done this so many times before, also related it back to a Canadian audience because I think that's really important. She seemed to have no problem with that, even though uh, she was very concerned about that at the beginning. And then um, we got to a point where we were talking about what's next. Uh, she asked me, what do you foresee is the next steps? Like, what are, what are people doing in the campaign? Like, how are people feeling? Like, what, what needs to happen um, next in order to, for these uh, types of things to stop and for the black community to feel safe, whatever? I responded by saying um, that that was a very difficult question um, because, you know, it just, I I felt a lot of despair. And then I said, but if people are truly serious about addressing this problem, now is the time to start talking about defunding the police. And I started to talk about how, uh, when I'm mentioning defunding the police, uh, the, the context in the city of Toronto, as an example, of how much funding goes to the police, um, to the detriment of other programs, and I talked a little bit about uh, the the way that the police budget increases every year is always justified by saying you know we need to bring the crime rates down, but it, it never, ha- like it, it, the the the. Um, the reason that they justify the increase is is never borne out uh, by the numbers that they always refer to. And so, you know, I was making a really cogent argument and she she interrupts me uh, to say, sorry, I just want to make sure I heard you correctly. Did you say defund the police? sounding really surprised and I said uh well yes and and then started to continue to give like the the numbers and the statistics uh, uh you know make the argument and she interrupted me again and said okay well I just want to let you know that a lot of people are chasing the story I'm not sure if we're going to be able to have you on the air because so many people you know we, we've got to check out all these people uh but uh you know I'll circle back to you if I can and so I got a response back on Twitter at, uh, I think, like, just before 9 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. I don't know where this producer (laughs) is located, but if they are located in the East, where producers um, who have contacted me for The Current before, since I've been on it a number of times, and this is, like, after midnight (laughs) Eastern time, she responded to say, "Uh, sorry, we're not going to be able to have you. We found somebody else. Okay. A lot of people... (laughs) A lot of people responded to that by saying, Sandy, I'm so sorry that that happened to you. Or CDC, you should have Sandy on the air. And it's, like, not the point. Although I appreciate you feeling that way for me. Like, I've been... I I have no, like grand desire to like be on the CBC. That's not what that was about. <laughs> <laughs> you don't? No, it's not. It's just not a career goal right now. <laughs> um, I, you know, I don't mind it. It's a thing that happens and I'm happy to be able to share my knowledge with um, a, a broad audience. Uh, but that's not the point. The point of, of me telling that story and why it's uh, it's so bad, so bad, is Because the CBC, in the very narrow types of people that they have producing stories like these, and uh, many of those people being white, the producers uh, behind the stories that you hear. Something that, like what I said, sounded to this woman uh, who, judging by her profile picture on Twitter, is white, Uh, sounded to this woman as something incredulous that could not be discussed, uh, on the radio perhaps. And, uh, that the issues that were in, that were local and relevant to a Canadian audience also were, were too, uh, too, I don't know what, uh, the justification would be, but too something, uh, to be discussed on the air at the current. And, in fact, the, the conversation of defunding the police is an old one in the black community. It's an old one, I would imagine, in the indigenous community. And I imagine it's an old one in other communities that have uh, difficult interactions with the police all the time. But she wouldn't know that because the producing team isn't diverse enough or doesn't have enough people on it who come from communities like mine uh, to to know that that isn't that isn't a weird conversation for a whole host of Canadians and in fact, this is the time to be having it. The point of my my tweets isn't to say, uh, put me on the air. The point of my tweets is to say the CBC, you are failing a whole host of people by refusing to have a diverse uh, crew of people who are on the production team deciding what is and is not news and what is, and is not an appropriate analysis related to that news?
1: the coverage that the CBC has had for the past three days on what's happening in the United States and what has happened in Canada has been really bad. Like I have been surprised honestly, and I mean my my expectations are not that high, but i I mean I heard that the the current that morning that you would have been on had they not gone with someone else. They ended up interviewing someone who's a professor from the United States, and so his analysis was 100% American, right down to the fact that twice uh, Matt Galloway, who's the host of The Current, mentioned this woman in the United States uh, who called the police as being, like, a symbol of what's going on in the United States, neglecting twice to mention that she's Canadian, which is just so, like— intentionally ignoring the, those kinds of parallels and connections that we have as Canadians to the United States and how a lot of these issues are the exact same. They just manifest themselves a little bit differently in Canada. And this, in the, the, the national public broadcaster, like, it has been very um, frustrating and a little bit scary to see how willing they are to whitewash what's going on. Like, this morning, all of the hourly news did not mention that there were thousands of people in Toronto uh, protesting... The police handling of this case with Regis Korczynski Paquette. Oh my God! And they mentioned a few hundred marched in Halifax and Vancouver, and it was like, why are you missing Toronto? And so I put this out on Twitter, and someone's like, oh, it's the same thing in Vancouver. In Vancouver, they're they're skipping over Toronto as well. And so that's like, okay, maybe that's an oversight. And then you go to Wendy Mesley, who who took the footage of the van driving, the New York police van driving into a crowd, and she said, yeah, it was I saw that pushed. Into the crowd.
0: <laughs> yeah. Unfucking believable.
1: Like they had aired that earlier and they had chopped the the tape up so that you actually couldn't see the egregious act taken by the person driving that, that vehicle. And CBC has since apologized. It has not been really seen by many people because the apology is like in a response to someone calling them out. But the, I mean, this is a combination of, as you say, the lack of diversity within the, the ranks of people who are making the news. Uh, and because of that lack of diversity, I mean, the fewer and fewer people you have working at the CBC means that that, that lack of diversity is even more more intense and even more exposed. And also this desire to make sure that Canadians don't think that what's happening in the United States is what's happening in Canada or could happen in Canada or our responses could be similar.
0: Yeah. And the fact that the news media thinks that, that that is their role. Like, oh yeah, to to be this kind of PR engine for the idea of Canada the Great, or at least slightly better than America, <laughs> like it's just so such a weird idea of how media should work, and uh, and just blatantly irresponsible uh, reporting, giving what's actually happening here to so many people.
1: Now, before we get into, like, the meat of the discussion on defunding the police, I think it's really important for us to mention, like, the videos that we're seeing from the United States of police officers murdering people, murdering black people. This is happening in Canada. Yeah. But we don't have video. Uh, And oftentimes they're not black. They're indigenous. So... Folks will remember a couple of weeks ago or a month and a half ago now, we had an episode that talked about the police and that talked about the police during the coronavirus, that there was going to be nothing for them to do and they were going we to be out that. of control. And when we did, <laughs> when we recorded that and a couple of days later, there were several police shootings and murders in Canada there was the shooting of DeAndre Campbell in Brampton and he was having a mental health crisis they shot him dead there's a shooting of Aisha Hudson and Jason Collins that happened in totally separate situations the same night shot and killed by Winnipeg police there was Stuart Kevin Andrews who's also indigenous also shot and killed by the Winnipeg police There was a man who was shot and killed in Tamiskaming in northeastern Ontario. And we don't have information really beyond that. And then you go to the special investigations unit in Ontario that actually details these situations. And you find uh, May 20th, a woman was arrested in Niagara Falls. She uh, was put into a cell. She had a tele-bail hearing because it violated her parole conditions. At 4.50 p.m. she was dead in her cell. We don't know what happened that happened on May 20th. Also on May 20th, uh, the police in Mississauga, Peel Police, get a call uh, from a man who's seeking assistance. Uh, mental health crisis again. And as the men, appro- as the cops approach the man uh, at his home, uh, he apparently shot himself in the head. And that's the story. And it's being investigated now by by the SIU. On May 15th, the SIU ruled that in the situation of uh, the death of a 38-year-old man in Kejik Bay, Sul, First Nation, on November 19th, 2019, he was shot uh, by police. And the SIU has ruled that they were unable to form a reasonable grounds to say that a a, a criminal offense was committed. On March 25th, Barry Police attended the twelfth, the 10th floor unit in an apartment building to check on a 79-year-old woman. They knocked on the door. There was no response. They got into her apartment. She was lying on the ground, apparently threw herself from her balcony. And finally, on May 11th, shortly after 10.30 p.m., Peel Regional Police attended to someone in uh, Mississauga on a domestic call. They arrived. A man and a woman were sitting on a front porch. There was an interaction that this says. And two of the officers discharged their conducted energy weapons. So they were tasered. And then after that, uh, one of the women, a woman, the cops, fired her gun. And the 34-year-old woman was 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 shot. And she was transported to, to the hospital. And so these are under investigation. I mean, it's happening All the time. Every one of those examples was from May or from March and was being investigated in May or decided in in, in May. I mean, that is that is just that's just Ontario. And then the couple of examples from Winnipeg in Manitoba. This is
0: out of control. It's absolutely out of control. And I think, you know, like I I know it sounds wild to some people, but I, I really want to be clear that this is not a bizarre idea. What we are talking about in terms of defunding the police is shifting the way that we think about and deliver safety to members of a community, okay? And so the story we are told is that the police keep us safe, right? But we have a whole host of communities who are saying, No, the police do not keep us safe, and we do not feel safe calling the police. Okay. So that host of communities who are saying that are also also happen to be the communities that interact with the police very often. Black communities, people who are poor, indigenous communities, people with mental health issues. Okay? So they're saying, police, we interact with you guys all the time. You're not doing it for us. You do not make us feel safe. And then there's a host of people who feel safe, because they have the ability to call 911, but don't actually ever interact with the police. It's not a part of their daily life uh, experience. It's just something that they know they have the ability to do. So they feel safe by virtue of the fact that they get to call 911 and speak to someone who will go over to wherever they need them to go to take care of it. But they don't actually deal with the police. What we're saying is that there is a way to think about safety where both of those communities feel safe and one of the most obvious things, given that the communities who are interacting with the police are saying, mm, does it make us feel safe? And the people who are not interacting with the police are saying, it makes me feel safe that I can call someone, is to just maybe not have the police do it. <laughs> because uh, the only people who are having the, that experience consistently day in and day out are saying that it's it's not the way forward. So that's just like baseline Easy way to think about it. Um, but we will go into more of the arguments. Yeah. So for me, I like I have never had
1: to call the police for a violent situation. I've definitely called 911. And when I call 911, usually I'm like, I need a fire truck or like really, really fast or I need an ambulance here immediately. And the only interactions I've ever had with police have been pretty bad. I mean, I've been beaten by police. I was placed under arrest on my front steps by police one night, which was very weird. Um, I I once witnessed a car smash into another car and then drive off. And then a year later, a police officer showed up at my door and was like, it's part of our investigation of this car smashing another car. Uh, I need you to sign a witness statement uh, to say that this note that you left was the note like, you wrote it. And I was like, oh, Jesus Christ, you guys actually followed up on this? Okay. <laughs> and, you know, you and I have had this conversation before. And, like, the, I think that the question that, that a lot of people who aren't sure about this issue get stuck up on is it's like, okay, so then what do you replace – Uh, investigations with, who does investigations, who does investigations into violent homicides, let's say, or investigations into serial Mm -hmm. killers. I mean, the ones that the most uh, headline grabbing attention, Uh, because I think that when it comes to like mental health calls, which are a lot of what the police apparently are responding to, I think that it's pretty reasonable to imagine literally anybody else than a cop being a better (laughs) intervener.
0: Well, and but let like let's make that clear to the listeners who who maybe it maybe it's not clear to you, but let let's just be very clear like what if we had another emergency service that you could call if there was an emergency mental health issue happening where someone who is trained uh to deal with a mental health emergency shows up to assist um in managing whatever crisis situation emergency situation is having happening and that person is not a police officer who does not have that training and that person is not someone who's going to show up with guns uh, to kill people uh, in who are going through that crisis situation like that seems pretty obvious to me um that was an issue in regis uh, Korchinski-Paquette's situation. That was in situ- uh, an issue in DeAndre Campbell's. It was an issue with Andrew Loku. And there's a whole report in Toronto the or in Ontario, the Akabuchi report that shows that police do not know how to handle mental health um, crises. So let's make another service with people who do know how to handle mental health crises. We don't need the police for this. And they fuck it up all the time. There's all this evidence for it. Fuck <laughs> it. Th- Seems Seems obvious, obvious fix. They shouldn't be the ones dealing with it. There's a certain kind of person that's attracted to becoming a cop as well. And I think
1: that that's like a really important part of this conversation too. That whenever, like you have a security force with everyone like who's involved in it is gets off in some way on having authority and, and power. And when you have that mix, like there's obviously going to be abuses of that authority and of that power when the system itself is built to give those folks unchecked ability to do what they want and uh, a ton of adoration and love from everyone from you know city officials to like sports teams to children in schools being taught that police are are great and you can you can imagine also like investigations that seems like something that you also can easily have a non violently trained group of people to be able to do investigations I mean when you're watching like, TV and the most glorified part of a police investigation, it's like the people that are pouring over the science of it and of the ballistics and of the possibilities and doing the interviews. I mean, that kind of stuff doesn't have to be done by a cop either.
0: No, it really doesn't. In fact, it probably is better if it's done by people who are um, educated in a particular Uh, subjects, subject matter, who are are experts in either the science of it or the sociology of it or whatever. But it certainly doesn't need to be police.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, and often the police that are on those files are the ones who are trained in that. So it's like, okay, why don't we just take them out of the police academy then and they can get to work earlier? I don't
0: know. Mm hmm. And then sometimes the police are, you know, trying to get help from people who are trained in that outside of the police, which is like, just eliminate the middleman. <laughs> Let's not have it be the police. Yeah. Um, the, another way to think about uh, defunding the police is that, like, when we give more money to police, we, we create criminalization. We don't necessarily address crime. We're creating crime. Why? How does that work? It's because the police, you know, uh, when they are looking for a crime, they will find one like that. You know, the, the, the idea if you give more money to this situation, there there will be crimes. And a great example, a great example is like um, what's happening with the TTC, right? Um, they've ramped up their uh, the amount of uh, uh, special constables who are on the TTC um, to enforce Um, fares, Uh, people, enforce people, you know, uh, engaging in what they call fare evasion. So people who are who are not paying Uh, because uh, the TTC has become more automated. And so it is like easier to get on without paying now, I guess. So they have these um, uh, enforcement officers walking uh, through the TTC, checking to make sure that you have your credentials that prove that you've paid. Okay. So what if, and here's, Here's a, you know, and, uh, and to be clear, there have been incidents of police brutality coming out of fare officers checking uh, to make sure that people have paid uh, their, their fare. What if, wild idea, idea here, wild, okay? What if we did not spend money on these special constables and fare police officers, instead just took a chunk, just, just take a chunk out of the police budget, put it into the transit budget, make transit free, I guarantee you we won't need fare, officer, fare enforcement officers anymore. We can eliminate the, the idea of this crime altogether. Just eliminate the criminalization element. If people were able to get on transit for free... And I mean, the people who are uh, evading fares, as someone who's done it before when I was quite poor, like, they're poor. They just need to get somewhere, likely work, (laughs) and (laughs) don't have any other means of doing it. And it's like, you know, brutalizing these people, like, it's just such a fucking backwards way to think about things. How about instead of putting money into criminalizing people who are doing that, take, prioritize people being able to travel, make transit free, and you will no longer have a need for these fare enforcement officers on the TTC.
1: Well, and you can extend that to everything. I mean, if you took the police budget, so in Toronto we're talking about billion dollars in most uh, municipalities, that's a it's a giant chunk of change. It's like you put some of that into the into the jobs that police do. Sorry, you just said a million dollars, but you meant a billion. So I actually like that's inhaled sure. something on a run tonight and my I've had like my sinuses going crazy since. So I said a billion, <laughs> okay. but it sounds like a million oh, okay. because of my nose. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, got it. Got it. It's a billion. It's over a billion. It's 1.07 billion dollars this year. It's
1: like when my high school math teacher used to call it Beth, honest to god. We were like, why does she call it that? <laughs> <laughs> she always did. Um, and so, you know, if you take the money out of that budget that would go into some of the jobs that you would have to have to create to fill in some of the, the service gaps, you'd still be left with a lot of money. And so then you can start thinking about, OK, so how do you create arts programs for youth? How do you create more uh, mental health services for all people living within the city? Or how do you create more shelter space? Or how do you create more family shelter space? Or, I mean, the, the, the options are actually really limitless. And all of these things would go much further to reducing crime than the focus on criminalizing communities. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure you saw this, but like this past weekend, cops are, are raiding people in Jane and Finch in Toronto. Like an over criminalized, criminalized, mostly black neighborhood in North Toronto, if you don't know, uh, if you've never been there. It's like, are are you guys bored? Like, what in the fuck are you doing right now?
0: Yeah, it's like, could we create safety and and security through funding access to housing, perhaps access to child care for maybe youth who um, uh, need to have... Um, access to more adults in their lives, more adults in schools, you know, uh, who are able to to deal with mental health uh, uh, issues that might come up, or any other thing that could reduce the types of activities that police say that they're working on all the time. And then in, another thing that I think of with respect to uh, defunding the police and serial killers, as you mentioned, Nora, like let's not forget the issue of Bruce MacArthur in Toronto when. There was a serial killer who was terrorizing uh, the queer uh, community in Toronto uh, near Church Street. But the victims just weren't the right kind of victims, I guess, for the police. They were uh, poor racialized men. Um, who are being killed by Bruce MacArthur and the police, you know, people in the community kept being like, there is a serial killer in the community. And the police kept being like, nah, it's not, it's not really actually happening. Like, they, like, what are they useful yeah. for? I just, I don't, you know, in a, in a situation like that, you know, we can see where they fail so spectacularly, And so many people died because of, as a result of them refusing to even believe a community that was saying, "Hey, we have a safety issue that we need you to deal with."
1: Yeah, the the big the biggest example of that, of course, is William Pickton, who was murdering people, murdering women, mostly sex workers and indigenous women and poor women, for years before uh, the police in Vancouver took it seriously, and um, and even the most sensational crimes. That have happened recently. I'm thinking of a crime like this mystery around who killed Honey and Barry Sherman. I mean, this is uh, Barry Sherman was like one of the the founders of Apotex, an extremely wealthy individual. And it's been five years and no one knows who walked into their extremely secure house and just murdered them. So like there's a real illusion that police are are preventing crime when in actual fact, I mean there's after the crime things that police aren't doing um, and we can debate on how useful or successful those those tactics are that they're that they're using, but they can all be replaced with a civilian service that isn't trying to stop crime because they're not currently stopping crime and of course, the only way you can really stop crime is to empower people, empower communities, give people the resources that they need so that that they aren't able to be preyed on by other people and have intervention programs for being able to identify people who are violent or who are uh, interested in committing crime and to take those People seriously when the first time they interact with the criminal system appears. I mean, Bruce MacArthur is a good example of that. He beat a sex worker, uh, badly with a pipe, and so was in like was known to police and was still able to murder. Uh, I think it was eight people. I mean, Elizabeth Wetlawer uh, murdered eight people as well, and she totally would have gotten away with her crimes, has she not? Just confessed herself to a nurse at Cam H, which is a mental health office um, hospital in Toronto. So we really have to get out of this mindset that the police are are doing uh, anything uh, good, and and be very open. Uh, we white people listen to the stories of, of the communities who are policed the most, who have the most interaction with police, and 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 to say to take the the stories seriously. I mean we don't need videos of a police officer literally murdering someone in front of our eyes to believe that this is happening. People have talked about this happening for a long time. It's well documented. Hell, like you can read the SIU's reports yourself and just be like, "Ah, that that story doesn't sound like it checks out. Uh, Rather than having people insist that people are, are demonstrating, proving their humanity to us and that the default assumption is that the police are virtuous and doing the right thing and it might just be a couple of bad apples who commit these horrible one-off crimes
0: yeah you know a lot of people have asked me you know how do you know how do you know that something bad happened to regis at the hands of the police maybe she did just kill herself well as the police are claiming she did You know what? Here's what I do know. I know the police have lied countless times before. I know that they have fucked up countless times before. And I know that they kill a lot of black people. I also know it'd be really weird for someone to just claim um, that what happened to her daughter happened to her daughter just as a result of what? Wanting to go through the turmoil of uh, trying to make people believe her through this situation. No, like I, my default is going to be believing believing the person who is going through the despair of having heard her daughter's last words, help me mommy, um, when interacting with the police who ha- we know have done this before. Again, another thing to think about when we're thinking about defunding the police is what this budget has led to, what these budgets have led to. Every year, the police and politicians are always like you know we want to deal with crime. We're going to be tough on crime, and that means more money to police. And um, uh, I'm sure a lot of that is a function of a really powerful police union, which is a whole other topic we could spend a whole other um, uh, show talking about. So they say they need they need all of this money uh, to to create safety. But if you look at some of the statistics in Toronto, certainly um, I'm sure that there are other examples across uh, across Canada. Um, The the amount of funding that increase that goes to the police seems to have zero bearing at all on what's happening with crime, what's happening with homicides, what's happening with uh, so-called gang activity. Any of it seems to be completely unrelated to the increase in funding. But you know what has happened with an increase in funding? Well, they've hired more police officers. Um, The rate of pay of police officers goes up. They've implemented surveillance equipment and made that cert like almost um, a fact of life now. There's just surveillance video across all over um, uh, the major cities. Um, certainly in Toronto. Um, in Toronto, uh, brand new stealth police cars where you can't tell that they're police cars. They just got like new, new, new brand new cars that where you they can just hide from you. Why? I don't know. Safety, apparently. Militarization, assault-style weaponry going to police, listening devices that might may very well be illegal that can listen into your cell phones, sound bombs. Remember that? Uh, during the G20, they got sound bombs so they could disperse crowds who are uh, prote- protesting uh, lawfully. Um, Whether they're whether it's lawful or not, they got fucking sound bombs (laughs) to rip the eardrums of people who are saying this is not like this is something that I disagree with in our society. Um, And they've got um, an increased amount of what they call non-lethal weapons, which can certainly be lethal. And now they're arguing that they need body cameras. It's like what is happening is like the increased technology, increased militarization of the police, but not a whole lot of increased safety. All that does is make it easier for them to hurt us, those of us that they come in contact with all the time. And the ones who don't have contact with them ever, never see anything related to any of that stuff ever. We don't need it. We don't need it. And even if you're like so staunchly against, surely you can see why all of those things that I just mentioned are not necessary. Quite frankly, so many jurisdictions across the world don't even have their police have weaponry at all. Start there. Like the UK, the police, frontline police officers are not armed with guns. They don't need them. They don't need them. No, over the
1: past couple of days a tweet or a couple of tweets referencing the same thing has come up over and over and over which is that there was a situation in New York City where where police wanted to demonstrate their utility and so they went on strike to show that without policing the city would descend into chaos and anarchy and of course crime went down <laughs> like right <laughs> which isn't too surprising but it's like yeah okay and and I think a lot about the um the 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 Orlando nightclub shooter in uh, a couple of years ago where they had this just horrific death toll and he apparently had barricaded himself in the the, the the nightclub bathroom after having killed some number of people maybe a dozen people and to get him out of the bathroom the, the, the local police department had a tank and they drove a tank through the wall of where he was barricaded and then they killed him. And this, the, this this news came after. So, like, there was a death toll associated with this mass shooting. And it was all associated with him. But after the news reports started to show that actually the police killed a lot of people when they busted through the side of the club and and got into this place where this guy was. And I think about that so much because it's like... That was not really part of the news. The total death count was still attributed to the guy. Of course, you know, he, he was a mass murderer and, and, and what he did was horrible. But the police also killed people in the process of trying to take this guy out. And it is just such a good example of like where where our priorities with policing are are so backwards. It's like, oh well, you know, they might you know, they might crack a couple heads, but either they deserved it or it's a small price to pay for our freedom and our protection. And and, you know, it's so easy to forget, I think, in Canada that police only existed to protect private property. Right. The the, yeah. the tradition yeah. of the policing, origin is
0: so important.
1: Yeah. The, the, the tradition of policing comes uh, from uh, capturing escaped slaves and making sure that slave owners were able to have access to people who, who ran away from their ownership and to protect private property and you know the the RCMP the original version of the RCMP the Northwest Mounted Police their primary goal was literally genocide was literally to clear land in Canada of the people that had lived on that land for time immemorial and push them onto tiny tracts of land so that they could flood the, the, the prairies and parts of Ontario. And this happened earlier in Quebec with settlers from wherever, from white Europe, mostly England, uh, but also the Ukraine and, and Eastern Europe. And that foundation of policing is still so much a part of what they do and why they exist. And if we don't say that, if the CBC is afraid to investigate that, or if that's not underpinning the way that we are talking about police, then it might be possible to say, yeah, police protect people. Like you can call 911 if your car is broken into and you'll get all your CDs back. But like everyone knows that's not how it works. Um, that, that the, the, this idea that private property needs to be protected at all costs, this is what we're seeing in the United States. This is the clash of the liberal state where private property is the most important thing. And so the pictures of a building that is on fire or a building with window smash, like a target where people are just taking target stuff and then actually distributing it among people for free, which is actually amazing in that rules, that becomes like the biggest crime. And then the police are protecting those buildings. That is literally what they expect exist to do. And so we cannot forget that, that what we're seeing in the United States, that we're seeing in Canada, these are not accidents, that these are built by design into the processes and structures of policing in North America.